Thank you, choir. Well, you know, today, in a way, for some of us, is a sad day, you know? And the reason it's a sad day is because, if I'm not mistaken, the Olympics come to an end today, right? How many of you have been Olympic junkies this past couple of weeks, all right? More than in the first service. How many of you have missed sleep uh, because of the Olympics, all right? Um, I'm, I'm in your number. That is a, uh, we're a sad group of people. But today, the uh, Olympics come to an end. It's been a good run. I mean, it's got a lot of negativity, you know, before the Olympics took place in Rio when everything you know, was getting set up and a lot of news articles and reports that came out of how ill-prepared things, you know, the, 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 the host country was, all this thing. It, it was just, it ended up being great, you know, in a lot of different ways. But to me, what I love about the Olympics are all the stories. I mean, I love the competition, uh, and, I, and I love, you know, like cheering for people and just, just seeing all the drama that goes along with it, but also the stories. And there's been some negative stories, obviously, if you follow the Olympics here lately, but there's been a lot of good, a lot of good stories that have come out of it as well. Usain Bolt, for example, he's one of my favorite ones. You know, if you've seen him race, you know, he's the, the first Olympian to ever win 100 meter, 200 meter in three straight Olympics. That's eight years of dominance. Just an amazing story. Uh, one of the uh, swimmers, Lily King, do you remember that when she kind of did the finger wag, you know, and she was like, you know, you're not beating me and kind of the, you know, little finger wag things. So some of you try that at work tomorrow. You know, the boss comes in and says, hey, get this report. You're like, mm, don't mess with me. See how that goes. Let me know. And then uh, I think to me also, one of, the, one of my favorites was Michael Phelps. You know, he has this image that has become characteristic of the kind of his whole Olympic. Remember this, this picture? You know, if you, if you don't know the backstory, you know, he's ready, you know, for his particular race. And uh, this is one of his competitors that beat him, I think, uh, last year in the World Championships, maybe, if I remember. And uh, I won't name where he's from. But uh, needless to say, he was kind of shadow boxing in front of Phelps. And Phelps didn't take too kindly to it. He kind of gave him this face. And I think the guy swam back to his country or something. I don't know. But he ended up beating him. But it's just, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, it's, just, it's great to, to see these stories and to, you know, to see the competition that takes place. Every single day, every single event, it seems like there's another story, you know, a little bit of drama that comes out. But here's the thing. When you study these track athletes, when you, when you look at what they put into it, I mean, this only comes around four years. I mean, you don't, you don't get the Olympics next year, the next year, the next year. I mean, it's a four-year run. And some of you, like I have, may have seen instances on the track, for example, you know, where a runner settles into the blocks and uh, it may be a prelim or it may be the final or whatever, and uh, he Fault starts, you know, it's runners to your mark set, and then he goes before the, 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 the crack of the gun, and he fault starts, he's done. You know, and that's happened some in this Olympics where they don't get a second chance. Four years of effort, four years of training, and in some cases, four years to lay a base, you know, to get ready, and then another four years for this particular Olympics. And so there's a lot that goes into this, and in some instances, you know, the athletes don't even get a chance to compete as a result of it. And what gets lost in this whole deal, you know, in the midst of all the, the publicity and the drama and all the things that sometimes go on, are the sacrifices that these athletes make for just one run, right? They push away from the table early before dessert. They get up early. They run extra laps. They swim extra laps. They do whatever it takes to beat their body. They move sometimes cross country for a certain training facility or a certain coach. I mean, they uproot. They leave family. They leave friends. Sometimes they leave their schools if they're, you know, if they're still in high school. And they have tutors that travel around with them. I mean, they, their whole lives change for one specific pursuit, and that pursuit is a gold medal. And, and as they uproot and as they embrace these changes, they do it willingly. They, they, they embrace these changes that come because of the value of what it is that they're pursuing. So let me just kind of take that mentality for a second, because what they show us is what surrender looks like. Let me take that mentality out of the athletic world, and let's drop it down for a moment kind of in the, in the spiritual world, in the spiritual realm. Because in a very real sense, what happens in their minds and in their hearts, I believe, is what God is looking for for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the scriptures tell us in, in the Bible what God is looking for in regards to 
a relationship with him. The Bible lays out for us specifically what it takes for us to have a relationship with God, what it takes for us to get to heaven. And the very start of that is that we come to a place where we repent, right? That's a Bible word. Acts 3.19 says to repent and return to God. So we turn from our sins. Repentance just means, you know, we come to a place where we are sick and tired of our sin characterizing ourselves. You know, I don't want to be known by God as just a sinner, you know. So I lay down my sin. I, I turn. I repent. I turn away from it. And I turn to something to replace it. I turn to a relationship with Jesus Christ. I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus. And when I have a relationship with God, for all of us, if we can rightly say, I'm in a relationship with God, that relationship with God came simply by his grace when we responded to the gospel, right? And we turned from our sin and we turned to the person of Jesus Christ. So how do we turn to him? We turn to him in surrender. If I were to to do a poll somehow of the people that are in this room just for this message, it would be shocking how many people right here assembled today, if I were to catch you after the service and, and have a quick little you know, conversation with you, if I were to ask, what do you believe it takes for a person to know God? What do you believe it takes for a person to go to heaven? If this congregation is like most in this country today, it would be absolutely shocking that when I asked that question, how many answers came back that talked about being good enough to go to heaven? And it would be shocking of the numbers of people who go to churches in the, on these islands and in this city and, and all around this country. If we were to ask the question, what do you honestly believe it takes for a person to go to heaven? Do you believe you're going to heaven? And if you do, why? How many answers would come back that say something along the lines of, well, you know, I've lived a good life. Or we'll find somebody who's not as good as us, right? And we'll say, well, I'm better than them. You know? And we kind of characterize what it takes to get to heaven based on our good deeds. Let me just say, and this ties into the message today to a large degree. Let me just say that when a person has a relationship with God, that relationship did not get established because we were good enough for it. And when a person dies and goes to heaven, they do not go to heaven because they were good enough to have earned that. Nowhere in the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, does it ever tell us in any shape or form, does it even lean towards being good enough to have a relationship with God. And yet the vast number of church-attending people in this country today have this faulty mindset that I know God and I'm going to heaven because I'm good. Think about it this way. Let's say, for example, you were were in school and you're taking an exam, you're taking a test. Say you're, you're, you know, it's midterm and there's a lot on this. It's 40% of your grade. First exam you've had all year, you know, in this particular class. And so there you are, you're taking this exam, and you sit down to take the test, and you realize that all the questions that are on this exam, the, the professor never even covered. You know, never even dealt with the material, never even introduced the material. And these aren't superficial questions that anybody knows. I mean, this is very specific. This is a very specific exam with very difficult questions. And you weren't even told how to prepare at all. The material was never covered. How would you think about that particular professor? How would you rate them? You would say they were horrible. You would say that was, they were a cheat. You, know, they were, you would say that that's just not the way this works. You can't hold me accountable and never tell me what it is that, that I'm supposed to be accountable for. We don't get hired for jobs and then called into the boss's office over something we didn't do when he never covered it you know, on the job description. It just doesn't work that way. And yet, here's the, here's the weird thing. So many people think, well, I get to heaven because of my good deeds, but nowhere in the Bible does it ever tell us where the line is, you know, kind of like when we've gotten there. <laughs> and if it were really to work that way, 
It's like God would say, well, you got to get here. you got to know me by your goodness, but I'm not going to tell you where the line is. I'm not going to tell you how good is good enough. That would just be cruel, and God doesn't operate that way. See, the way we know him is when we turn from our sin, and then we place our faith in his son Jesus. And what does that look like? It is absolute, total surrender. It is coming to a place to where we say, God, I do not want to even lead my life anymore. And I do not want sin to characterize me for who I am. And so in the most radical way I know, I am surrendering. I am giving up my life. Think Olympic athlete, right? I am giving up all of my other pursuits. I am surrendering my life to Jesus who died for me and who rose for me and who calls me to himself. I am surrendering my life at that level to follow him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my life. And yet when we take a moment and we look at the average church today, here's the thing, and I've been in a lot of different churches, and when we look at the average church today, in this country at least, what happens is, is that there is like this mindset of, of nominal Christianity that pervades the majority of churches. Some of you have been in many, like more churches than I've been in. And, and, and you understand that there is just kind of this pervasive mentality in many churches today in our country that, that nominal, superficial is good enough. And surrender is no longer in our vocabulary. It's almost, you've heard me talk about this before, it's almost like we, we have our little compartment for God. You've heard me share that you know, one of my quirky little things, I only have one or two, but, but one of those quirky things is that I don't like my food to touch, right, when it's time to eat. And, uh, well, not all of my food. Some of the food, it's okay. I mean, milk and cereal, there's no issue with that. Ice cream and chocolate syrup, that, that's perfectly fine. But don't get the green beans up in the mashed potatoes. That is not, that's not a good thing. You know, the juice gets all, anybody with me on this? All right, okay, a couple of you. Somebody came up to me after the second service and, um, you know, in the welcome time back there. And they said, you know what, when I was in preschool, uh, she said that I didn't eat all my food. And my teacher, my preschool teacher, I just heard this, like it traumatized me 45 minutes ago. She said, my preschool teacher took my green beans, put them in my mashed potatoes, mixed it all up and made me eat it. And I thought, That's a, that is horrible. That's a, I saw who clapped, but you need to check your salvation, Ryan. <laughs> Yeah, if you have those kinds of stories, don't share it with me. It's almost lunchtime. I mean, don't ruin my life. That is just gross, okay? So, so uh, somebody gave me some plates. I, again, I've shared this before, but it fits really what we're looking at. Somebody gave me some plates a few years ago, and, uh, and they're here today, actually. Not the plates, but the person. And, uh, and they're compartmentalized. They're, they're excellent. One of the best gifts I ever got. And, uh, just compart- you know, little, little, say, little dividers in there, you know, so your green beans don't get up in your corn juice and don't get up in your mashed potatoes and your peach cobbler. So... So that was a very good thing. But here's the thing. When we think about that, and we kind of laugh at it, but here's the thing. We all have, if we're not careful, we shouldn't have this, but sometimes we're all guilty of having a God compartment, don't we, in our lives. And it's as though God has his little dividers. He has his little section. Be honest, and this is serious stuff here because God doesn't desire this. We have our God compartment where God goes in there. And then here's over here, we have our work compartment. We have our career compartment. And God is not allowed in the work compartment because he, he comes out on Sundays. He might come out on Wednesday nights if we're super spiritual, right? And he may come out on a Bible study if we're extra super spiritual, but he still has his compartment. And I've got my career compartment. I've got my family compartment. I've got my money compartment. And this is often furthest away from where God is. And then we've got my weekend compartment and my compartment that no one else knows about. It's what I do when no one's looking. And we have these lives, if we're not careful, where as Christians now, 
our lives are not characterized by surrender, where we are totally, completely surrendered to Christ, but where we have all these little compartments, and God has his. And I believe, based on Scripture, and you've read it like I have, that God's ideal, his desire, when we think about it, is not that we live our lives compartmentalized, where we, he has his, his little spot there, but where he has allowed free reign in every area of our lives. And if I could demonstrate it today, it wouldn't be the little chinette plate with the dividers. It would be the big old giant platter where everything gets mixed up. That's what God is aiming for in our lives. That's what salvation looks like. And so radical is the picture in Scripture of what the surrendered life looks like. Follow me on this. So radical, it's as though God said to himself, when a person places their faith in Jesus, when they come to follow me, I want a picture that is going to demonstrate this for everyone, as though God is saying this to himself. And so what picture will I choose to demonstrate outwardly what a surrendered life looks like? I got it. We'll call it baptism. And the picture of baptism, though we often take it for granted, and though we often become so familiar with it that we miss the significance, the picture of baptism, what it's showing in salvation, is not that we're saved by being baptized. If it was that easy, I mean, let's just big a build, big, build a big pool, and Jesus would never have to have died on the cross to begin with if, if we could just be saved by being baptized. No, baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't make us right. It doesn't get us to heaven. What it pictures is the radical nature, follow me, the radical nature of salvation, that a person is showing their change in their life by being submerged, put into an environment where they were not designed to survive. They're, and I've never dropped anybody, so don't get creeped out if you're thinking about being baptized. But you were placed in an environment where you cannot live. And you are being raised out of that environment. Remember, baptism, showing salvation, raised out of that environment to a new life. It's like you are being rescued. And it's as though God said, how do I picture outwardly the nature, the essence of salvation? It's through baptism, being raised out of death into life. Where in the world is there a place for nominal Christianity there? No, it, it, it is that God's desires that would be so incredibly surrendered to him across the board, in every area of life, in our dating life if you're single, in our marriage life if you're married, in our finances, in our our, our day-to-day routine, in our work life, in in every aspect that it be surrendered to him, that we be submerged and immersed and covered in life, that we've been rescued. That's what the Christian life looks like. And yet in the majority of Christian churches, you've been there. The norm is nominal. The norm is something far less than surrendered. I've never met a nominal Muslim. I've never met a nominal Jehovah's Witness. But I've met a lot of nominal Christians. And sad to say, in my life, there have been times when I've been that nominal Christian. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And I think one of the best passages we can look at is in the book of 2 Timothy. So why don't you turn there with me, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say in this particular passage of Scripture. I'll give you a, a deep theological insight here to the book of 2 Timothy. Here it is. You ready? 2 Timothy is a follow-up to the book of 1 Timothy. It's very deep, isn't it? Here's one that's even better. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of 2 Timothy. And he wrote it to a man named Timothy. Okay? Are you with me so far? Okay, everybody with me? All right. 
So what you're going to read here is just a snippet out of one of two letters that Paul wrote. They are very intensely personal letters to Timothy. Timothy, if you're not familiar with him, more than likely heard the gospel from Paul years before. He was led to faith in Christ. It was Paul who shared the gospel with him. It was Paul who came alongside of him to kind of nurture him. And at the same time, what we see here is that Timothy would have a heart for God to the point to where he would become a young pastor. Now, being a pastor doesn't mean you have more of a heart for God. There are, far, there are many, many, many people who don't serve in vocational service as I do that I can learn a whole lot from in regards to a life that's fully immersed and fully surrendered. So being a pastor doesn't make you more godly at all, I promise you that. But Timothy had sensed a call from God and began to serve the Lord vocationally. He, he was more than likely a young pastor. He, he was timid. He, he needed a mentor. Paul was a lot of ways that. And so what we find here in 2 Timothy is that Paul is laying out for Timothy what the surrendered life looks like. And he goes to no uncertain terms. He, 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 all throughout First and Second Timothy, in a lot of ways, he's pouring into Timothy's life. But here in chapter 2, we just see a little bit of a, of a snippet, just a little, a little section kind of cut out that I think captures it for us. And so let's jump in here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says to him, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let me just pause there. It's a word picture. This is one of the things I love about Scripture is that it paints for us pictures that we can easily understand. Paul does this for Timothy. He says, Timothy, I'm going to paint a picture for you of what Christian service looks like, of what it means to be in relationship with God. It's a lot like being a soldier, a good soldier. And he says here in verse 3, he says, Timothy, one thing that you're going to need to understand as you serve the Lord is that I'm going to call you to suffer hardship with me. There's a lesson there because, yes, God does bless us, and yes, God does meet our needs as his children. Yes, God does provide for us. Yes, he never leaves us or forsakes us. Yes, following Jesus is exactly what Jesus called it in John 10, 10. It is an abundant life. It is an overflowing life. However, there is also a cost in this world when we choose to follow Christ. And that cost will at times feel extremely, uh, extremely high and will weigh an awful lot in our lives. There will be a cost. I remember preaching on a section out of Hebrews chapter 11, and it was kind of the, 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 the tail end of Hebrews 11. The first part of Hebrews 11 is kind of known as the Faith Hall of Fame. A lot of people give it that title. And uh, it names a list of people throughout uh, Old, and, Old Testament history that followed the Lord and, and showed great faith. But at the kind of the tail end of Hebrews 11, it begins to capture a lot of the cost that those followers of God, uh, you know, absorb themselves. And I remember preaching on that one time years ago, and there was a guy in our church, they, he and his wife ended up moving away to another state. He took me, he went to lunch with me one day, and he said, he said, you know what, I just want to thank you for preaching on the back side of Hebrews chapter 11. That there is a cost to following Jesus, and he is always up front with that cost. And so let me just say, again, just as we don't get to God by our goodness, we don't also get to God because we've suffered a lot. But what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, if you serve God in this fallen world, if you take a stand for what is true and for what is right and for what is godly, and if you live your life totally surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, I just need to tell you up front, man, it is going to cost you. And you are either going to have to make a decision to cut and run and make life easy and comfortable or to stay in the fight and absorb the cost and get the reward that comes with that as a faithful follower of Jesus. He says in verse 3, suffer hardship with me. It is going to cost you to follow Christ. There is a reason that 11 of the 12 disciples that Jesus had in the gospels suffered martyrs' deaths. 
One, Judas Iscariot, took himself out. Another, John the disciple would die on exile on the Isle of Patmos, and I count that as martyrdom because he was taken as an, and not of his own will, and he was exiled because of his faithfulness to Christ where he died. Eleven of the twelve suffered a martyr's death that we can read of in New Testament or, or in, in, uh, in history. And it's because following Christ will cost us. He goes on to say in verse 4, He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In a sense, what Paul is saying here to Timothy is that, Timothy, as you seek to serve the Lord, you will face many distractions in your life, and there is danger in those distractions. You will face things that will come along in your life, many of which are good things, And yet those things will serve as dangerous distractions to lure you away from a life of total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me just pause here for a second. Let's just kind of turn the tables a little bit and look inside your life for a moment. And ask yourself, if you have a relationship with God, if you've given your life to Christ, what are some of those distractions that lure you perhaps away from a life of total surrender? One of those may be the pursuit of financial gain. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a business and turning a profit and supplying for your family. Nothing wrong at all. However, Scripture is very vocal in saying that if we are not careful, the pursuit of worldly wealth can lure us away from a life of total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe for you it's a career. Maybe it's the pursuit of an extra job or an extra hours to, pr- to provide extra you know, worldly desires that you have. And what happens is, is that those things may not be bad in and of themselves, but it is pulling you away from a life of total surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe for you it's something else in your life that as you look inside your heart, honestly, you would have to say, you know what, this is something in my life that has served as a distraction, a very dangerous distraction to pull me away from a deeper walk, from a deeper level of surrender with Jesus. Maybe it's just the good life you know, in general. I mean, we live in a distraction-rich environment here, don't we, on these islands and in this city. I mean, people travel from all around to come here because of what is offered, and, and we are surrounded by distractions, And just as Paul would say to Timothy 2,000 years ago, I believe he would say to us, we need to be careful because there is danger in those distractions. And so as I was putting together this message, I was thinking, so so what is the remedy then? If if God desires total full-blown surrender to him, that we don't dabble with Jesus, you know, we don't just dabble with the spiritual aspect of our lives, we don't just dabble in scripture, but we are really fully surrendered to him. If that's the goal, if that's the bullseye, if that's the goal, and if distractions constantly are pulling us away, you know, to where we are becoming entangled, like Paul would say, entangled in all these dangerous distractions. What is the remedy? And as I was putting this message together this past week, I thought, you know, here's here's the remedy. The remedy is this, and I'm going to read it out to you. It's priority-driven balance. That's what I thought. That's the remedy. It is a priority-driven balance. It's a balance to our lives that is driven by what is priority. And then I I thought through the course of this weekend, after this message was done, it was was like, you know, in the notebooks, so to speak, you know, I was ready for Sunday. I thought through the course of this week, and I thought, you know what? I need to clarify that. Because there are a lot of people in this world whose lives are balanced around a priority 
but the priority is something less than Jesus. <laughs> you see, having a balance in our lives that, are, that is driven by our priority is not enough. We have to be sure that it is our relationship with God, that it is Jesus Christ himself who is our priority. He is not something that we dabble with. He is our life. He is not a part of our life. We can't rightly say, oh, Jesus is a big part of my life. That accurate, really, grammatically, that shouldn't even be accurate. We should be able to say, you know what? Jesus is my life. I mean, he speaks into every aspect of who I am. He speaks into how I parent my kids and how I spend my money and what I do on the weekend. He speaks into all these. That's what we should be able to say. And yet, if the balance of our life is not balanced around the right thing, Jesus, things are going to very quickly begin to spin out of control. And maybe for some of you, this message today is a reminder that there are things in my life that are not where they need to be. Jesus, though I have given my life to him in salvation, is not the very center of my life. And there are some things that need to be reprioritized to make sure that from this day forward he is. Paul would write elsewhere in Scripture, not to an individual this time, but he would write to a church you know what, let me show you one more verse, actually, that I almost missed. Verse 5. Let me show you verse 5 real quick before we get to 1 Corinthians. Paul adds another layer. He talks about a soldier first, then he goes to the athlete. He says, verse 5, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. If anybody competes as an athlete, you know, in Olympic games, whatever games you may want to choose, he's not going to win if he doesn't run according to the rules. I mean, you step outside the rules, I mean, you're just going to get... DQ, you're going to get disqualified. Happened to, to the American, one of the American relay teams on the track just this, this past week. If you don't run according to the rules, I mean, it doesn't matter how fast you are, how good you are, you don't win. <laughs> That's the way life rolls. There are, there are physical laws that apply to life. If you jump out of a 10 story building and don't believe in gravity, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. You know, what you believe, I mean, it's still going to apply. I and mean, there are physical laws that govern our universe. And in the same way, there are also spirit, there, there are spiritual laws that govern our relationship with God and how we live. And what we need to understand is, is that we can't have something other than Jesus Christ at the very center of our focus. We can't have career in that spot or our family in that spot or a pursuit of, 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 of worldly gain or fame or whatever it is. We can't place something else, even ourselves, in that spot and then just dabble with God and think it's all going to work out. You can't have your career as the center focus of your life come to church even every Sunday and think that somehow that's all going to pan out at the end. No, there are rules that apply. There are spiritual rules. And it's not like God is the rule keeper up there blasting us when we mess up. He doesn't operate that way. But there are spiritual laws that can't be altered. And our design, by the way we were created, God created us to know him. He created us to live in subjection to him. He created us to live in surrender to him. And when we do that, we understand the beauty of what life is all about. We understand him as a God who loves us and, and who is for us and who's not against us when we know him through Christ. But we can't make up our own laws along the way, our own rules along the way. We have to operate the way God designed it. And so Paul is speaking of himself now in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's writing to an entire church in the book of 1 Corinthians. And as he lays out to this church what it looks like to live a life of surrender, he points to himself as an example. Look at what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, do you not know, he says to this Corinthian church, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. 
Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. In other words, I am intensely intentional. Paul says, there is one primary overarching prioritized focus of my life, and that is to live a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. Everything else falls into place around that. Everything else balances against that. He says, I run, or he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I am intentional. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, he says, I myself will not be disqualified. Why is that? He says, because I don't operate on a separate set of rules as everybody else. Just because I'm a preacher and just because I'm a missionary, Paul says, it doesn't mean that I have a different standard or I get a free pass. No. If I don't keep Christ at the very center of everything that I am and everything that I do, I will suffer as a result of that. And so even I myself, I keep Christ where he belongs. I am a slave surrendered to him so that when my job on this earth is done, I will not have been disqualified. And it doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. He says that I won't be shown as not being uh, legitimate, as not being qualified to receive the reward of a follower of Jesus. Which brings us to today and brings us to here. That though we are not responsible for any other church on this spot, the spot of this globe, and though we're not responsible for the walk of any other person, we are responsible for our own walk and we are responsible for ourselves as the body of Christ. And so here's part of my fear. And here's part of the urgency for which I felt this was the message for today. That if we're not careful, we at this particular church can begin to embrace a mindset of nonchalance in regards to our service to the Lord Jesus. You know, I've been here 14 years. And I'm not a big time numbers counter, you know that. But I would say with all accuracy that on any given Sunday here, we could see our attendance fluctuate 20%, and it's become the norm. We may have 600 one Sunday, and the very next Sunday we have 400, 450. And it's not about having bigger numbers, but when that becomes the norm, what that communicates to me is that, wow, somewhere along the way, there are numerous people who've forgotten what it means to be a part of a family a spiritual family, where your service is needed, not so that we can just fill spots, but because there are lives that need somebody to serve. And if we don't become careful, and if we don't become mindful, there will be a mindset that only gets worse that says, you know what, I'm not needed there, and it doesn't matter whether I'm there, and I'll see everybody in a few weeks when I get done with all the other stuff that matters more than God. Oh, I'm not saying you have to be in church for God to be first. I understand that. But I think you know what I'm saying. If we're not careful, we can become very careless with what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus. If we're not careful, I've begun to see this a little bit. We can have a mindset that says, you know what? Somebody else will do this. Somebody else will teach that class. Somebody else will work with those students. Somebody else will, will, will help you know, fill that gap. Because I can't commit. i got too much going. 
I got sports, and I got work, and I got to work out, and I got to do this, I got to do that, and I got all these extra responsibilities I've taken on because it's going to help me to get to where I want to be. And, you know, I'll help when I can, but somebody else will do that. There is no guarantee that's the case. Gaps are only filled when someone fills them. And if we're not careful, we'll continue to a place to where there is a healthy or rather unhealthy mindset that, you know what, somebody else will do this. I have a fear maybe that there's become a disconnectedness in regards to what it means to develop a relationship with God. Not come into a relationship with God, but to develop that. Time spent in His Word. I have a fear that maybe there's become a nonchalance with how we treat the Bible. Not publicly, but just in the time we spend in it as people. I know in my own life that there are bars that I need to raise in my, in my own life. And so I'm not saying that, hey, y'all need to get things cleaned up so you can catch up with her. I'm not saying that at all. There are areas in my life where God has put his finger to say, you know what, you need to be more surrendered in this way and more surrendered in that way. But I think if we're not careful, there's a nonchalance that we come to a place where we don't stay immersed in God's word. And when we don't stay immersed in God's word, we don't understand God's heart. We don't understand God's heart. We don't begin to think the way God thinks. And whenever we don't think the way God thinks, we don't begin to act the way God wants. When we don't act the way God wants, then our life becomes a grease fire. (laughs) And we make some horrible decisions. And we portray God in all the wrong ways. So I think maybe there's a call for us to be more immersed in his word, more engaged in prayer, and more willing to see those that God puts in our circles of influence as people who need to hear the gospel. Maybe you don't live in the house you live in because of the house. Maybe you live in the house you live in because of the neighbor across the street. Maybe you don't work at the job you have because of the paycheck. Maybe you work in the job you have because of the coworker three cubicles down. You see, there is a spiritual component to life that we sometimes miss that doesn't come because it's a compartment. It comes because we are surrendered followers of Jesus. And he has placed you and me in this world to answer his call to reach those around us with a message that's changed our lives. And we can never expect to reach the nations. We can never expect to reach their country. We can never expect to change this community if we're not willing to be the people he's called us to be. Committed, sold out, surrendered, engaged, following his son, Jesus. So I don't know what the application is for you. I know what it is for me, but I don't know what it is for you. I understand that this is a message that maybe for you kind of hits, it hits the heart. Maybe it's uh, one of those that's between the eyes. And I hope you know my heart behind it. But I'm just saying, the older I get, the less I want to spin wheels. (laughs) You know, there's a point where you can't talk about potential anymore and it'd be a good conversation. When a ball player is 19 and you talk about his potential, that's normal. When that ball player is 38 and still trying to make it out of the minor leagues into the major leagues and you're talking about potential, hey, that window's closed, buddy. (laughs) It's time for something else. And we can't talk about, well, that church on the corner has a ton of potential. Hey, God's done an amazing amount of ministry through this church. But I just want to say, maybe to summarize it all and I'll be done because you're getting hungry. That you know what, the time is no longer to talk about, boy, what God could do through us. Maybe the time is to start being surrendered down to a person and say, God, here am I, use me. And may we not talk about the potential anymore. But may we start very soon praising him for the work that he does through us that we could have never, ever imagined all to his glory. Let's pray.
with heads bowed and eyes closed. For some of you as a Christian, the application is to take inventory. Am I all in? Are there distractions that have taken away my attitude of full surrender to Jesus? And then for others here, the application is not so much that. It's the decision to surrender your life to Jesus for the very first time. Not trying to get good enough that he'll accept you. He'll already accept you, and he's already died to cover over all the bad stuff. He's died in your place. He's risen from the dead for you. And just as it is with all of us, he calls you to exchange your sin for his forgiveness, to no longer choose to live for yourself, but to choose to live for him. That you would open your heart and open your life to accept Christ, even inviting him in to forgive you and to take over. For some of you, that's the decision of the day. And right where you sit, you can have that that conversation with Christ, inviting him to forgive and take over even your life, that you can follow him from this day forward. God, whatever the application is for us this morning, whether it's on the part of one who's never known you, to finally step into a relationship today by grace through Christ, or whether it's maybe an application for one who's known you for so long but has just begun to sort of gravitate away from a life of surrender, God, I pray that our choice would be to follow you. And so give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage to lay down our lives, to follow you, knowing that you are a Savior who laid down your life for us first. And so bless these decisions, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.